Well, we come again to that time in our service, the pinnacle of a worship service, when we have the opportunity to humble ourselves before the infallible record of the Word of God. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn again to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this wonderful Gospel. And every time we come to another text, we find yet another magnificent insight into God's plan of redemption and very practical things that we learn as we look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we will be in verses 21 through 26. Follow along as I read Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what? Will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. History reveals that man is prone to creating God in his own image. As we look at mankind, we see that for the most part, people believe that God is too judgmental, he's too unfair, he's too indifferent, or he's too insensitive. Most people resent any claims to his sovereign rule. They don't like the idea of him being absolutely holy and therefore holding us to his ridiculously high standards of righteousness, and then coming along and threatening us as his as our judge. We as people prefer rather a God that we can appease, one that is malleable, one that we can manipulate to somehow give us stuff. Because we want a God that serves us. We want a God that exists for us to meet our needs. And Frankly, the God of the Bible isn't that kind of a God, and we don't really like that, so we like to reinvent him. Not only that, he makes all these claims in the Bible that we don't understand. He's way too incomprehensible, too mysterious. So we need to redefine him in a way that we can understand him, and we need to redefine the doctrines and adjust them so that they are palatable to our theological tastes. In fact, if you look at it, we really prefer to worship the creature, not the creator. We want to be like God. Well, certainly it's true that the character and the purposes of God are incomprehensible. And frankly, only through the eyes of faith can we even get a glimpse of who he is. Moses tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord. Indeed, there is an infinite chasm between man's minute understanding and God's omniscience. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 9 or verse 8. And he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, in light of this, we quickly discover that his plan for glorifying himself through salvation of sinful men is filled with paradoxes. His ways seem illogical 
to our way of thinking. And if you think about it, we can come along and look at the Bible just uh, in, a, in an overview type of a way. And we look and say, my goodness, you know, he has these standards of righteousness in his law that, that nobody can possibly attain. And then he comes along and, and he demonstrates that, that we are utterly unable to save ourselves, to be somehow reconciled to the God whom we have offended. And yet he comes along and he chooses just a small remnant of people and he pays for their sins by sending his own son the third member of a triune Godhead, and he sends his son as a baby, and he is born of a virgin in obscurity, in a stable, then he lives a perfect life, and he ignores all of the religious elite, and he comes along and pours his life into a handful of ordinary men. That just makes no sense. And then beyond that, despite all of his compassion, the people hate him, and yet he willingly gives himself as a ransom to pay the penalty of sin. Then he's buried and he's resurrected. And all of this gospel message is so profoundly offensive. In fact, it was so offensive that even though he had hundreds of thousands of people following after him, every time he would preach, he would run the vast majority of them off. And it is estimated that he had less than 500 followers. When he finally went back to heaven, you see, none of this would be the way we would save the world, right? It's all so mysterious and so far fetched this. And frankly, this isn't the kind of Jesus that we would create. And yet this is precisely the Jesus of the Bible. And frankly, this dilemma of the paradoxes of the Christian faith, of the Christian life are at the very heart of the text that we have before us this morning. This is the scene that we have with Peter and the things that he struggled with. You see, in this text, we are going to see three paradoxes of the Christian life, three marvelous realities that continue to be obscured, I believe, in the superficial kind of quasi-Christian evangelicalism that we see in our culture today. Three essential truths to Christianity that are counterintuitive, if you will, to human reasoning. And yet, and I want you to understand this, unless you grasp these truths objectively and live them out subjectively, we have no right to claim genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. These paradoxes of the Christian life stand in stark contrast to the superficial watered down gospel that is popular today. Now, before we look at the text, I just want to add something here. I'm going to go over a few things that we've gone over before. And the reason I'm doing that is we have many listeners around the world and a number of them have written to me, especially in the last couple of weeks, and wanted me to expand a little bit more in a very practical way on this whole seeker-sensitive phenomena that is just sweeping the world, especially the purpose-driven church and the purpose-driven life movements. And so, therefore, I want, to, I want to repeat maybe some things that we've heard before, but I want to tie it in to this text because we're, we're going to see the contrast between what I believe is really the truth and the heart of the gospel versus much of what's being preached today. You see, the wide gate gospel that Jesus warned about, that everybody's going to rush through, that leads to destruction, inevitably redefines God and it redefines ministry, or I might say reinvents ministry, in order to somehow be appealing to the masses. You see this in the whole prosperity theology movement where basically people run into churches so they, they can get a Mercedes and a, and, a, and a nice fat bank account. You see it in different fads. We went through the prayer of Jabez, which was it really didn't even have the gospel presented in it. And yet thousands of people flock to that. And certainly you see it in various aspects of the entrepreneurial market driven evangelism, as I call it, of the purpose driven life. Not to say that it is all bad. There are some very good things in there. But there are some very, very dangerous things that I want to point out, as many others are trying to point out, to caution discerning Christians with respect to the contrast between much of what is presented 
in those particular books and others like them versus the truth of the gospel. And at the very heart, if I could summarize it, I would say that the purpose driven life uh, movement trivializes the holiness of God. And the sinfulness of man. And the way it does that is by offering a simplistic, superficial gospel invitation that guarantees purpose in life. Let me give you an example. In the Purpose Driven Life, you have a gospel invitation that invites people to, quote, quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. And here it is. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. And then the pastor goes on to say, if you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. You are now ready to discover and start living God's purpose for your life. You see, no mention of the real issue of the forgiveness of sins. Thousands of small groups use a Bible study teaching video that they have called the 40 Days of Purpose. And they have a slightly longer prayer there. And in this particular video, the pastor says, Quote, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you aren't sure of this, I'd like the privilege of leading you in a prayer to settle the issue. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray a prayer and you can follow it silently in your mind. Now, here it is. And I quote, dear God, I want to know your purpose for my life. I don't want to waste the rest of my life on the wrong things. Today, I want to take the first step in preparing for eternity by getting to know you. Jesus Christ, I don't understand it all. But as much as I know how, I want to open my life to you. I ask you to come into my life and make yourself real to me. Use this series to help me know what you made me for. Thank you. Amen. And then the pastor says, and I quote, if you just prayed that prayer for the very first time, I congratulate you. You've just become a part of the family of God. End quote. Now, friends, here we see that the most meager approach to Christ on the basis of a simplistic prayer that, 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 that is not framed at all in, in the gospel with respect to the offense of a holy God and the, the crying out for mercy and the need for the forgiveness of sins. Just that meager approach and that simplistic prayer guarantees a happy and purposeful life. Nothing about even eternal worship and glory in heaven says nothing about the, the righteousness of Christ. There's no brokenness of spirit. There's no hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's no pleading, as we see throughout the New Testament, for undeserved mercy because we have violated a God and offended his holiness. Only this notion of I want to know your purpose for my life. I want to get to know you. Uh, so I'll open up my life to you so you can make yourself real to me. Now, friends, my objection to this, as well as many others, is that this kind of, of wide gate entrepreneurial evangelism. The reason I say that is because so much of this particular work and many others like it have been designed by marketing firms, not theologians. This type of wide gate entrepreneurial evangelism that is so popular in the seeker sensitive movement today utterly eviscerates the heart of the gospel. And I believe it cleverly disguises the glorious paradoxes of Christianity. Therefore, the title of my sermon this morning is The Power of a Paradox-Driven Life. And my prayer is that you will be discerning and not blur the, the line between truth and error and obscure the difference between the saved and the unsaved. Now, let me give you the context to the text that we have before us. As Jesus' public ministry is gradually diminishing, we see that his private ministry to the disciples is increasing. Now, he has just established uh, the church on the basis of Peter's testimony that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. But then he introduces the first of what many would perceive as just kind of a logical absurdity that Peter and, and, and by the way, he was speaking, we believe, for the for the others as well. Uh, paradoxes here that, that are just utterly unacceptable. Notice the first paradox, and I would put it to you this way. The first one would be that a cross comes before a crown. Now, this is crucial, by the way, in understanding the gospel. We must understand that divine holiness has been offended by a sinful man. 
And only the sinless God man, Jesus Christ, could pay the penalty. And if you don't understand this, you're not saved. I don't care what prayer you've prayed. And again, I believe this this is missing at the core of most invitations in the seeker sensitive evangelistic movement. Now, notice verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. The original language, it literally is the word for murder. He's going to be murdered and be raised up on the third day. Well, this didn't set well with Peter and the boys. Okay, this isn't what they had in mind. This wasn't the Messiah they had in mind. You know, they're thinking, what are we going to do? We've depended upon you these three years or so. You, you, you fed us and you've protected us. I mean, we want the kingdom now. We, we, what about our needs? After all, you, you're here to make us happy. Maybe that was an element of what he was thinking. That's certainly what people think today. You, you know, he's, he's probably thinking something along the line of you, you can't go out here and get yourself killed. What are we going to do? That's nonsense. What are we going to do without you? And so what does Peter do in his mind as well as the others? The same thing that we all have a proclivity to do, and that is to redefine Jesus to somehow fit our agenda. To meet our needs, because we refuse to believe that somehow God knows what's best. Sound familiar? So Peter speaks for the others and verse 22 says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke is an interesting term. It, 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 uh, it has the idea of, of scolding, of, of admonishing. Can you imagine that? You know, Peter admonishing the incarnate Christ. It has the idea of reproving someone with authority. And by the way, the grammar would indicate that he had been redoing, doing this repeatedly. It wasn't like he finally had enough of it and said, Jesus, come over here. I've got to talk to you. But it's something that was going on repeatedly. What was he saying? God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And, and we've seen this in other passages where where Peter and the others are, are kind of confused. I mean, think about it now. The masses are following Jesus. You might say that that they're eating out of the palm of his hand until he preaches and then runs them all off because they don't want to hear the truth. They're not concerned about their sin. They're not concerned about their spiritual needs, but their physical needs. And so the Peter and the guys are thinking, man, look, you know, let's storm Jerusalem and take it back from the Romans. We want the kingdom. What do you mean you're going to Jerusalem and you're going to be killed? But certainly Jesus knew that the multitudes that followed after him wanted a blesser, not a savior. That's precisely what we have with so many people today that flock to these places to somehow get some kind of temporal goody from God. Rather than coming, begging for undeserved mercy, for the forgiveness of their sins. Well, obviously, God's ways are not man's ways. And Jesus gets enough of it in verse 23. And he says, the text says that he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Wow, what a blistering rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, that must have set him back on his heels. You see, Jesus knew that Satan was behind the disciples agenda. Undoubtedly, Satan knew that Jesus dreaded the agonies of the cross. I mean, we saw that, did we not? In the Garden of Gethsemane, where he sweat drops of blood and he said, Father, if, 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 if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. But also, Jesus knew that the sins of the elect could not be forgiven without his perfect sacrifice. That was the issue. That was why he was here. Because if there was no sacrifice, there would be no forgiveness. If there's no forgiveness, there would be no salvation. If there's no salvation, there will be no glorification of the Father. And he came to do the Father's will. Peter and the guys just didn't get it. And I would submit to you that most other people today don't get it. And unless we make it clear, they won't get it. This is always Satan's strategy, isn't it? His strategy of temptation, remember in the garden? He comes along and he, he, he gets Eve to doubt the goodness of God. You know, God's kind of holding out on you. And then he begins to twist the word to find some 
perceived loophole to, to circumvent the will of the Father, to get her to focus on her needs, not his glory, so that we can do our own thing. I mean, it's, it's the same old stuff. We, we've seen it repeated all throughout redemptive history. Well, Peter illustrates this. He illustrates our proclivity, our negative tendency to believe what we want to believe about God as long as it fits our agenda. Because, friends, man is hopelessly narcissistic. That might be a big word. You might not be used to that. Narcissism, is, uh, it, it just means egotistical. I mean, we're, we're, we're conceited. We're self-absorbed. We think that everything needs to orbit around us. We are the center of gravity. Life is all about me. That's the idea. And so that translates into God, you exist for me. Now, what I need to do in my religion is learn how to somehow pry goodies from your stingy fingers. And therefore, people rush into these seeker sensitive churches to be entertained by music that sounds as much like the world as it possibly can so that they feel absolutely comfortable by the way, if you remove the music from those churches, I would I would bet you that nobody would come because most people are coming to be entertained. They're not coming to set and humble themselves under the preaching of the word of God so that they can grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ and glorify the father. That's not why they're there. They're looking for some other temporal thing. So they run into these places because ultimately what we see with people is that they prefer happiness over holiness. I want to put myself in that, too, because I, I know that we all struggle with that. Even as Christians, we prefer happiness over holiness. We we prefer recreation over recreation, right? We don't want to be regenerated and born again, become new creatures. We, we want to be happy and enjoy everything in the world. That's the idea. We want health and wealth, not forgiveness. We want purpose, not redemption. Well, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are a scandalon in the original language. By the way, that, that was a term used to describe a, a bait stick in, in, a, in an animal trap. You, you are a lure to temptation. That's what you are, Peter. Get behind me. The term, by the way, later was used to describe luring a person into captivity and into destruction. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests, Jesus says. So, in, in effect, what the Lord is saying is not only are you being the mouthpiece of Satan, but, but you're, you're creating me in your own image. You're wanting me to do your will. You want a Messiah king so that you can enjoy the kingdom now. But you have no understanding that a cross, cross must come before a crown. Because you don't understand the seriousness and consequences of your sin. Jesus is saying again, my ways are not your ways. Your ways are selfish. Mine are selfless. Your ways are short sighted. Mine are eternal. You set your mind on. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. By the way, if I can digress for a moment in light of the pope's passing yesterday. I find it interesting that Jesus' scathing rebuke here of Peter really, as I see it, strikes a death blow to the Roman Catholic doctrine that Christ established his church on Peter. And all of the successors in the papacy are equally infallible. Oh, really? It's sad. I heard one of the high-level Vatican officials uh, the other day before the Pope died saying to pray for the Pope, quote, who is the successor of Peter and vicar of Christ. Vicar, by the way, means the substitute or representative of Christ. And by the way, according to, to Vatican I, Peter, as the head of the whole church, uh, and by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he supposedly, the Pope supposedly speaks for Christ, defining all matters of doctrine, all things regarding faith and morality, and he supposedly does this with perfect infallibility because he w was, was ultimately, uh, or, or his authority is ultimately rooted in Peter. And by the way, all Christians are supposed to submit to this doctrine, according to Vatican I, um, quote, from which no one can deviate without loss of faith and of salvation. 
end quote. This is a tyrannical false religion, dear friends, and it holds millions in the bonds of its blasphemy. These dear folks are in desperate need of the gospel. This Pope, by the way, had indicated that, uh, and he's been applauded for this, maybe you've heard this, that uh, you can have salvation without conversion. That's been kind of the, the, the great noble thing that he has brought. And um, no doubt the next Pope will be even more inclusive. I think what you will see are, you know, you'll see things like you know, women priests, and I believe they'll embrace homosexuality and so on. And every time I think of all this, my mind goes to Galatians 1.8, where the Apostle Paul said to the people, in that church, but even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. Well, Peter was obviously not infallible. So Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And friends, I fear that the lash falls upon all of our backs here. How often do we insist upon our own agendas rather than God's? Right? We want relief more than we want blessing. Think about it. Troubles come and we obsess over the distress rather than the loving God that has ordained them for our good and his glory. We end up demanding an explanation. God, this isn't fair. We end up rejoicing in all the good things that God gives us, but isn't it true that we often at least secretly, at least privately, resent his testings found in life's difficulties and heartaches? Beloved, we must not fail to see that, that even in our lives, a cross must come before a crown. I think of James 1 and verse 12, where we read, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. By the way, it's great to know that Peter and the others eventually understood the need for Jesus' death on the cross. They didn't understand it here, but they did later. Later on, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned these words in 1 Peter 2.24, saying, He himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Dear friends, please understand, our greatest need in life is not purpose, it's forgiveness. And when we give our flesh free reign to run, run after all of the self-centered ambitions that we have, we end up creating God in our own image, creating a God that somehow will, will serve our selfish and finite purposes. And unwittingly, we become the pawns of Satan. There is a way, the Bible says, that seems right to a man, but the end is what? The end is death. So we must never forget the first paradox of our faith. A cross had to come before a crown because sin is the real issue. But notice the second one that we have. The second paradox that the Lord imparts to them, beginning in verse 24. And here we have the paradox. I would just call it this. We win by losing. See, again, obviously Jesus saw through their rabid commitment to self. And this is inherent in Peter's re rebuke of the Lord. And in verse 24, he says, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will it be profited, profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Actually, I should have read to you as well, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, friends, here is the real heart of discipleship, of following Jesus. We've got to learn to deny ourselves. So spiritually, we win by losing. Self-denial is the key to, to blessing. And if you want to be a Christian... I can just put it as practically as I know how. If you want to be a follower of Christ, it begins with self-denial. And again, this is this is the opposite of the self-centered gospel of neo-evangelicalism that paints God with a with a smiley face running around trying to make us all happy. You see, we must understand that Christ suffered the agonies of the cross 
for our spiritual, not our physical needs. The physical comes someday in heaven when we have our glorified bodies. Verse 24, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. The word deny is interesting. It means to to renounce yourself, to abandon, to completely disown. By the way, it was the same word that was used later on when Peter denied Christ. The same word. You see, here's the point. When we come to faith in Christ, we are to come, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, poor in spirit. Utterly bankrupt. We have nothing to offer. We're crying out for this undeserved mercy and grace from the Lord. We, we come to Christ renouncing our old self, according to Ephesians 4.22, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. We, we abandon our fleshly desires that constantly clamor for satisfaction. And of course, television just fuels all that so that we're never content with anything. We reject our natural inclinations to self-gratification, confessing with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7:18 that I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. We come, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, laying aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Now, friends, think about this. Imagine if this were the emphasis in modern day evangelism. You know, you are sinners come for undeserved mercy, cry out to the Lord for this mercy and then deny yourself. No, no, no. Wait a minute. I'm not coming to deny myself. I'm coming to gratify myself. I thought this was the gospel of self-fulfillment. Jesus adds to that in verse 24. Take up his cross and follow me. Now, friends. The people understood precisely what Jesus was referring to here, because it was estimated that even during the life of Jesus, approximately 30,000 people were crucified. That's a lot of people. And part of the torture in that day was that you had to bear your own cross. You had to carry your cross to your designated place of execution. Can you imagine that? That the instrument of torture that you were about to endure had to be placed upon your back. And by the way, here, the term take up in the original language literally means to raise up or, or, or to bear or to carry something for a decisive action. And this particular walk to your place of execution was considered a death march. Now, in light of that, here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to come to me, I want you to surrender all that you have to me. I want you to be willing to endure all manner of suffering and shame on my behalf, even if it takes you to a cross. And folks, it doesn't mean that we're all going to be martyrs, but it means that we all need to be willing to be martyrs. And as we look at the gospel of Jesus, we see that, in essence, he says that, that whenever you you enter through the narrow gate of salvation, pleading for undeserved mercy, you, you are to disown your former self. You're, you're to want nothing to do with the old man that is always on the prowl to satisfy the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. Leave it all behind. Leave it all behind. And begin what may be your death march to martyrdom. Well, friends, these are the types of things that I would humbly submit to, submit to you that are concealed in modern even, evangelical circles with respect to, to an invitation, evangelistic invitations. Because this stuff doesn't sell. Nobody wants this type of Jesus, this type of a gospel. You see, people have been told that you know, well, hey, if I believe in Jesus, I, I can know my purpose for life. And, and by the way, even in this book on the purpose driven life, it includes some superficial overview of, of, of many basic truths. But my fear is, again, it obscures, if not eviscerates the essential elements of the gospel. You see, nowhere in the gospels do we read Jesus preaching to the multitudes 
like some of the things that I would see in the chapter headings of the purpose driven life. For example, you wouldn't hear him say, and these are quotes, you were planned for my pleasure. My smile is the goal of your life. I want to be your best friend. You can be as close to me as you choose to be. I want all of you. Life is all about love. I mean, folks, I'm sorry. That's just not the gospel. There's some truths there. But they need to be. They, they need to be tertiary at best, because the foundation of the gospel is that the wrath of God has been satisfied by the appeasing, atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And unless we have his righteousness imputed to us, we cannot be saved. And I would humbly say that had Jesus preached the gospel of the purpose driven life. I believe that he would have enjoyed the same applause of today's multitudes and he would have never been crucified. And if he had never been crucified, we would have no means for salvation. He would have been a best selling author. The people would have never abandoned him. But I fear that this kind of saccharine, syrupy sentimentality now dominates quasi-Christian, even the quasi-Christian evangelical landscape. You see, what, what bothers me, friends, is that you'll not hear the bold, decisive, clear, authoritative invitations of Jesus. You, you, you'll not hear Jesus saying like he did in Matthew 4:17, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, meaning turn and walk in a different direction. Your direction is wrong. My direction is right. You'll not hear an invitation that we read of in Luke 13, 24, where Jesus said, strive to enter by the narrow door. Strive, agonizomai. It's great agony. You squeeze into it. You have to jettison all of self. Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You don't hear that. You don't hear him say, as we read here in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And friends, I fear that you'll not hear the warnings of self-deception, the dangers of having a false assurance of salvation. And yet the Lord reminds us of that, did he not, in Matthew 7, saying that not, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to hear that in modern invitations. You'll not hear Jesus warning that he did not come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. Matthew 10. Remember in that text, he says that he's going to set a man against a father, his father and a daughter against his mother. And, and, and that a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And that he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You, you don't hear that type of stuff. Because, again, it doesn't sell. Because it's all about drawing a crowd. I've noticed that. Many pastors that rush after all the latest fads to reinvent their ministry so they can get a bigger church end up going to any lengths to emulate whatever guru they admire. They end up wearing the same clothes and, and using the same methods and the same music and all of this. And certainly people don't like it. They're labeled as divisive and they're basically squeezed out of the church. And another thing that I noticed that is really sad is that in their passionate quest to somehow attract a crowd with, with whatever method. And by the way, it's always justified as evangelism. But in that passionate quest, there never seems to be any emphasis placed on a humble willingness to somehow shepherd the flock that they currently have. To somehow pour their life into the 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 people that they have. Somehow that's not good enough. We've got to have bigger and better. There's no emphasis in serving the Lord all of your life in utter obscurity. But that was the emphasis with the prophets. And that was the life of the apostles. And friends, that was the life of our Lord. Well, the fallout from superficial preaching is a superficial faith. And then you have a superficial discipleship. Beloved, we must preach the gospel clearly enough for unbelievers to reject it. 
but because we have such a fear of being marginalized as, as, a, as a church, as a Christian community, or alienated by so-called seekers, the gospel gate gets wider and wider and wider. The message gets more and more trivialized. And as a result, we end up blurring the line between believers and non-believers. Anybody's profession, anybody's simplistic prayer or meager approach to Jesus is considered okay. And we end up filling the church with unbelievers. And those people end up resenting the truth. You don't believe it? You take a Bible expositor and you put him in one of those churches and you see how long the people last. You put somebody in there that preaches the word in season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not. Somebody that rightly divides the word of truth, that preaches the whole counsel of God. You see how long those people continue to come. It is for this reason that I stand before you this morning calling us back to the great paradoxes of the Christian life. For these are the divine principles that that should drive our lives. I believe that Jesus wants us to clearly understand that when we place our faith in him as our savior and as our Lord, we do so by jettisoning all of our former self and surrendering our lives completely to his will. Willing to make any sacrifice for him, even if it's our own life. Well, is this your attitude? Ask yourself that. Jesus went on to say in verse 26, what will it be profited? What will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The point is, what possible advantage is it? To have all that the world could possibly offer, but not have Christ for eternity. When it's all over, you die and you're separated from God eternally in everlasting torment. That's that's stupid. That's the thinking of a fool. And yet people clamor after all these things in life that are eternally inconsequential. Reminds me of Jonah that talked about the the people and even himself regarding vain idols, he said. It's the idea of lying vanities. It, It was the notion in the Hebrew of somehow holding on as if you've got some great treasure, but what you've got a hold of is absolutely meaningless. It'd be like invited, you're, you're invited to, to trek across the Sahara Desert. And you say, oh, good, I've got to get my iPod so I can listen to music and my little video game. What what about the water that you need? But that's how people live their lives. They don't think about the consequences of their sins. All they think about is what can I somehow get from God here so that I can be happy in life? We've got to be careful not to foster that. I had a friend that was witnessing to one of his friends, and I'll never forget the story. He found out that his friend was selling drugs, but all he would do is make one run per year to uh, another country and and get the drugs. And this was several years ago. And uh, he would make $200,000 for that one time a year. He wouldn't work the rest of the year. All he had to do is, is work. And it took him about three days to do this. And... As my friend shared Christ with him, he told me, he said, David, it was so sad. He says, I, was, I share Christ with him. You know what he told me? And I remembered this when I was thinking about this sermon. I pulled this out of my notes. Here's what the guy said, and I quote, I don't need Jesus. I have all I want. That's how most people live. What a classic illustration of the masses who live only for this life. And I would ask you the same question that Jesus asked. What will you give in exchange for your soul? Your family, your career, your hobbies, your wealth, your prestige. That's not to say that Jesus is going to ask all of this, but of you. But are you willing to give that? By the way, the good news of the gospel is that when we do place our faith in Christ, there is a transformation. The old things pass away. The new things come and we long for the things that. Honor the Lord. We begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Well, not only must a cross come before a crown and winning comes by losing, but finally, the third paradox is that there's lasting joy. Lasting joy comes through suffering. And this is implied in verse 27. 
Here's the point. There, there is a reward. I want you, you folks to really hear this. There is a reward for those who live lives of self-denial, who willingly suffer for Christ. For example, the Apostle Paul had said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, I mean, folks, here's the reality. If you follow Christ, you will be persecuted. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to die a terrible death on a cross. It might. But you are going to suffer. Because we are aliens in a hostile world that hates Christ. And people need to understand that. They need to count the cost when they come to Christ. And so everybody who willingly takes up their cross daily and follows him knows that they're going to be persecuted. But notice what verse 27 says. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. By the way, here's the first mention in the New Testament of Christ's second coming. We see the the Greek word parousia, which is the Greek verb behind the phrase going to come. And when he comes, the text says that he will then recompense, which means to give back or, or to repay every man according to his deeds. You see, this will be a day of great joy for those who have denied themselves and followed Jesus. Nothing to be afraid of. Jude gives us that great doxology and he tells us that that it's Jesus who will make us stand in the presence of his glory. What? Blameless with great joy. You know, so this is something to look forward to, to for those that love Christ. But for those who have refused to believe and to live the great and mysterious paradoxes of the Christian life, it will be a day of inconceivable horror. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Then he goes on to say to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But. To those who are selfishly ambitious. Those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will receive wrath and indignation. Very clear. You know, this is another essential gospel truth that is typically downplayed in modern seeker sensitive evangelism. The simple truth that judgment is coming. You see, again, people don't want to hear this. It's considered far too offensive. But friends, this is this is at the heart of the gospel. The gospel means good news. And you can't have good news unless you know how bad the bad news is. But Jesus never shied away from the truth. When Jesus returns the second time, he will, according to his words in John 5, 29, raise those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment And that's where the unsaved will be fitted with a body suited for eternal torment. Dear friends, each one of us, the Bible says, will stand before God and give an account. And make no mistake about it. The penetrating eyes of of, of our holy and omniscient God will not be deceived. There will be no place to hide. And your fate will not be determined by... A jury of your peers, but by a holy and omniscient God, the judge of the universe. And so I leave you with this question. Will he see a life driven by selfish ambition and phony religion that loves cotton candy Christianity? Or one driven by the glorious paradoxes of the gospel of Christ? Well, it is my prayer that you will not be deceived by Clever sermonettes that somehow obscure your desperate need for the forgiveness of sins, but that you will strive to enter that narrow gate. And the promise is that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall what? We shall be saved. And I would call you all to that glorious repentance that is found only in Christ Jesus. And for those of us that know and love him, 
Friends, wouldn't it be great if we really began to live out the power of the paradoxes of the Christian life? Where we really begin to deny ourselves and put Christ first? Imagine the transformation in marriages. Where all of a sudden husbands began to see that the most important thing in their life is surrendering their life to the Lord Jesus Christ and loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Can you imagine what would happen in our families? Can you imagine what would happen in our church if all of a sudden the center of gravity around which all of our lives orbited was literally this idea of self-denial? I'm going to give up everything so that I can surrender my life to Christ and I will be obedient to him even if it takes me to a cross. Imagine the revival that would break out in this place. And I call us all to those ends. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. We just pray, Lord, this morning that the penetrating truth of the gospel will pierce every heart, regardless of how hard it is. And we know by your grace and your mercy that can happen. And so we cry out to you that you will save those within the sound of my voice this morning. And Lord, for those of us that know and love you, give us not only the discernment, but the boldness and the discipline and the character to surrender our lives completely to the Holy Spirit of God as he has revealed himself in his word, that you might receive all of the glory and that we might indeed, as a result of that, Enjoy the wonderful purposes that we have as children of the living God. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.